Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. and Jean sat next to us, Sylvie and Jean combination, and he knew my weak spot, among others. He taught me a new application for my iPhone. (laughs) And here it goes. I have been sexually sober 226,000 499 hours. One hour at a time. They don't do this in minutes, however, yet. I've been sexually sober 9,437 days, otherwise known as 310.07 months or in English, 25.84 years. And the way I say it is 25 years and 10 months. Okay? Now, how do you get that sobriety day? How do you become an old time? Gene taught us this too. You don't act out today and you don't die. I mean, that's all it takes. This program's very simple. Thank you for all of you who organized this. It's one of the most organized uh, conferences I've been in a while. And I also can't start talking about our topic, which is uh, Nancy and my experience, strength, and hope being married in this program. We are married. Now, by the way, she's my hot babe in the red jacket. Does that give me a few extra points? <laughs> but I can't talk about any of this stuff until I mention Roy. And Roy has been brought up, but I want to mention an aspect of Roy that hasn't been mentioned yet. And that aspect is his thought. This man's thought created an enormous amount from the book of lust thoughts. But that same mind that created lust thoughts that we read about in all details in the essay book, 
that same mind that God gave him also had the thought of this program. And look, look what has happened from his thought, the power of the thought. That thought could get us into a jail, or it could get us this fellowship of the Spirit. And why is this so important to remember about Roy? Because we're all Roy's in the capacity to have our thought either end us up where we're getting arrested or where we're dominoing an effect that keeps multiplying what we see today because we all are pioneers. You know, people will call me about these questions they'll have. Well, who really knows? We just act. We're pioneers. People haven't done this before. We're, We're going through headwinds that people have not experienced. I mean, Nancy and I have not only had to go through recovery in our marriage, but how do you deal with your children about it? How do you deal with your grandchildren about it? How do you deal with your daughter-in-laws about it? We have four sons, so we got plenty of daughter-in-laws. By the way, you if you see me disappear, don't take don't think I'm in terrible shape. It's just I had a little problem last night, and I might need a kaopectate break. (laughs) Nancy's sitting there like this, but if you see me going like that to her, it means you take over for a while while I disappear. But I'll be back. You know, the miracles in this program. This morning, my voice was disappearing. My intestines already went. I was up most of the night. And here I am talking. What a miracle that I'm here able to talk. And yet, the miracle is just minute when you think about what God has done to a wretch like me. A wretch like me. And I often say, you know, sometimes I used to wonder about these stories, you know, parting the Red Sea and all. Well, if God could get me sober, parting the Red Sea was easy pickings for me. want to talk about our experience, strength, and hope in our marriage. But I want to start with this little kind of story. The story is I have a sponsee over the years, and his wife really gave him a tough time for years and years. How do I know you're sober? How do I know you're sober? Over and over she'd ask him, how do I really know you're sober? By the way, you've seen, I own a jacket I don't need to wear in it. <laughs> and my tie. Okay. This is all. Okay, don't panic. <laughs> how do I know you're sober? So a couple of years ago, you know, he called me over and over about this. And I got off the phone. Never have I said this to my wife before. I said, Nancy, how do you know I'm sober? 
Well, you could have pushed me over from her answer. I mean, I couldn't have anticipated her answer. She said, sure I know you so. I said, well, how? She said, well, I see you hit your knees twice a day. I see you rushing off to meetings all the time. And I listen to you on the phone with your sponsees and what you said. <laughs> we don't have to worry about explaining anything to our spouses if we're so. Nothing. And hopefully Nancy will talk some about this too. About so much of this dynamics that go on in this fellowship with husbands and wives. The wives asking, are you sober? Are you this? Are you... Is that a trigger for you? Is this a trigger? This constant interplay that goes on in the fellowship. And yet, what I say to guys at the meetings, and gals too, I would imagine, but uh, to the guys at the meeting, I said, you know, this seems strange. Seems strange. When you were out there doing all the crazy stuff we do, did not matter what your wife said to you. You did what you wanted to do anyway. But as soon as you get sober, you become Mr. Wimp. Oh, my wife thinks I go to too many meetings. Oh, my God, my wife's not sure of this or if I should do that. My wife did not fix my filter on my computer enough. Let me tell you, this is just my opinion, any wife who is putting filters for their husband on their computers is looking for trouble. This your husband, if he's not ready to get sober, will always be one step ahead of you. No matter what IQ I have, I share it with my addict. So if I have a high IQ, my addict has a high IQ. But there's one difference between my, me and my addict's IQ. My addict always lies. So it's as smart as I am, but it always lies. Therefore, it has to win. If I don't look at my mind as an enemy camp, as we said before. This need to have someone take care of your own recovery. And by the way, this works in reverse for SNOs. It's not the SA's responsibility to make you happy. It's icing on the cake. It's the SA's responsibility to somehow one day at a time to stay sober. So what, what happens in our marriage? What happens is that by the way, Nancy and I have been married going on 49 years in June, and we she says it's only been 25 years or so, but, uh, but we've been married longer in sobriety now than we have been in the disease. How did that happen? 
I would give my life, I would take a bullet for my wife, but I will not give her my program. My program has to come before my wife. It has to come before my wife, before my religious beliefs, before my professional beliefs. It has to come before my children. If I don't have recovery, I have none of those things. I have proven it. And I have also proven I cannot get sober for my wife, regretfully. Even though I die for her, I cannot get sober for her. I could not get sober for my children. I have an incurable, progressive, fatal disease. It will never go away. I personally believe I was born with it. It runs in my family. Just like alcoholism runs in my family. And so I have to be willing to put my program first and I have to be willing to let my wife know it. And like every other thing in this program, the paradox of this program, the paradoxes are mind-boggling. It's by putting my wife second that she ends up being first. It's mind-boggling. It's by giving it away today that I'm keeping it. And you know, my, the people in, my, in the fellowship here in Nashville, and I'm shocked I'm asked to speak. They hear me all the time. <laughs> I say the same thing over and over again. You know, over and over. They could say what I'm going to say before I open my mouth. And then I don't shut up. It's like a marathon. It doesn't matter. They raise their hands. They stand on their heads. But nothing. But they don't realize how sick I am. And that I can only... Well, no, they do realize how sick I am. I get that back. They tell me all the time. But it's only by giving it away do I have a chance to keep it one day at a time. So let me say, next few minutes and then have Nancy continue, how it all began. I, Nancy was about 17 and I was 19. And we were away. I was at the University of Alabama. And they said during Bear Bryant's time, and they said, this gal, they didn't say it that way, they said, this Jewish gal is coming up from Miami Beach, and she's shorter like you are. She's petite. <laughs> she's petite, and you're perfect for each other. This was a match made, made in heaven. And then we met, and we hated each other. <laughs> it could not have gone worse. And we just, she went her way, I went my way. And a few weeks later, we met at this party. The fraternity and sorority party. Back then, everything was segregated, and the gals and the guys were from the same religions, and all they, it was all computerized out without computers. And um, we we meet again, and two things changed my life about. One was, for some reason, we danced together. And it was like we had the same dance instructor. And the second thing was she had the cutest little butt I had ever seen. <laughs> now, these are very important issues to start your life with. 
And so we met again and danced a little and whatever. And a few weeks later, I said, I want to give you my pin. But this means we're going to get married. He said, okay. That's about how it was. <laughs> Not a whole lot of romance there. But a whole load of, um, in my tradition, we call it bichette. It was meant. We were meant. The only problem was her parents didn't think we were meant. <laughs> she came from a very refined family, and my family was not a refined family. And I was told to marry a rich gal, because we were not rich at all, <laughs> to say the least. And she was told to find a rich boy. And that's not what happened. And so they bring me home, she brings me home, and they dislike me on first sight. <laughs> and they had to start buying clothes for me and doing, they didn't like how I spoke. It was a perfect way to begin. <laughs> and then they met my family. <laughs> They were just higher class people than my family was. And nothing should have worked. No way this marriage could have worked. They wouldn't let us get married. I had to wait till she was 19 and I was 21. I had no future, no money, no nothing. And this kid, 19, comes to them and says, Oh, I'm going to marry your daughter. I have no job, but I'm going to become a doctor someday. And I had no money. And I was still, you know, junior in college. And they just thought I was crazy and she was crazy. And, you know, they were right. <laughs> and somehow we got married. And we were very young. And then the children began. We go to Florida every year to visit her parents. For about five to six years, they never saw her not pregnant. <laughs> Nancy would get as large around as she was tall. We went to <laughs> measured her. She had eight, nine-pound babies. She looked like a basketball with eyes. <laughs> Nancy said, I stole her line. Tough. I got to it before you. Now, we, after the first two, we tried all these type of birth control. But nothing worked. We couldn't understand it. Well, now, years later, I understand it. All these coils and all these birth control things were based on normal sex lives. They did not know I was sexually abusing my wife. They did not know I was giving her cystitis. They did not know that she couldn't walk in the house without my attacking her. They did not know that she was not allowed to be ill or have a headache or not feel right or be tired. They did not know that if she were all dressed and she looked good to me walk, and we were walking out the door, she ended up having to get undressed. Because I am a sex addict who sexually abused my wife for years and years and years. Hey, do you hear this kind of stuff often? <laughs> By the way, I make this all up as I go along. They, they had Nancy speak after me. They said, Harvey, we can't believe you anyway, so she'll keep, keep you straight. 
Now, I wish my sexual addiction only dealt with that, even though it's an awful thing. But it had also included compulsive sex with self, which she certainly didn't know about, and it extended into promiscuity that included gay, straight, you mean. By the way, I've never told Nancy my story. People can't believe it. She's never heard in 25 years my story. And she'll talk a little about that too. You know, people come to us, oh, should I do this full disclosure? Should I do that full disclosure? When do I do this? I don't know. We've never done it. She lived it. My amends to her is not to keep talking about it. And I give a different talk with a mixed group when Nancy's here. Just ask the guys and look. When Nancy's not here, my story sounds a little different. And most of you, many of you have heard this story time and again, especially in Nashville, that when God wants your wife to know, he will tell her. And in our case, after two years of sobriety in L.A., this was in about 1985, 86, 86, Patrick Carnes, which we didn't, who we didn't know is writing a book, came to L.A. conference and after the conference did interviews with people who at that time the greatest amount of sobriety, it was two years, two to three years. And he came and interviewed us. And a few years later, I, I'm a professional man in this community, and I took my nursing staff and Nancy and everyone, I said, gee, Patrick Carnes is coming. He's coming to Nashville. We all need to see his, this, his program. It's a two-day workshop. And so Nancy and I and all my staff went, and he said, and today... I'm going to present the most perfect case of sexual addiction you could imagine. I said, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) And he said, this man's mother was a sex addict. He said, Nancy, there's another guy who has a mother who's a sex addict. And then he said, and his brother died a semi-violent death because of this disease, who happened to be a rabbi. He said, Nancy, there's another Jew in the program. I can't believe it. (laughs) And then he talked about my profession. He said, can't believe this, Nancy. This is uncanny. And then he told my whole story. And I and everyone else and Nancy knew who this person was. And people came up to me throughout the conference saying, we are so upset for you. And I went to my five o'clock meeting that day in a state of shock. And I started to laugh. I said, God has a heck of a sense of humor. When he wants Nancy to know my story, he sure tells it to her. Doesn't matter if there are 200 other people there. He let her know my story. I want to tell you some things Nancy doesn't do in all these 25 years, she has never, ever, once brought up my past. Once. Never once. Now, you guys don't conceptualize it a lot of times. This, I did it for a long time. 
We are married to saints. We would never put up with our wives what they have put up with us. Or in Essenon, if you happen to be a husband. You Essenons are saints. Nancy does not bring it up. Nancy, I do not share anything with Nancy about it. But as I was telling to someone, how do I need to share with Nancy when I'm telling her every day how sick I am? My relationship is not based on trying to prove to her I'm well. Anyone living with me for any length of time knows I'm totally insane. I got so obsessed over the ice that I came here a day before. We live right here in Nashville. Money isn't flowing that much. We spent an extra night in the hotel. And that's one of my minor incentives. If I had to listen to her complain about her aches and pains, like I complain about my aches and pains, I'd go crazy. Crazier. <laughs> now the good news is she's learned not to listen to me at all. <laughs> um, I need to start cutting this down. What time do we start from? As some people know at these conferences we do, uh, how many minutes is that in? Yes? Okay. That's another topic maybe she'll talk about, sex and marriage. That's one of these. By the way, that's a taboo subject in this program. We make believe people don't have sex and marriage. It's not loyal to your wife. We have a lot of those that don't talk about that in the program. Well, guess what? We talk about it. Because maybe Nancy will talk about that, if not at some other, other meeting. I'm going to turn this over to, uh, to Nancy. I just want to end by saying for my part that I said it to a group a few hours ago that my sponsor would always say to me, Harvey, do you think God loved you when you were doing all those low-life, ugly things he used to do from your disease? And I'd finally say, yeah, I guess so. And he'd then say, well, if he loved you then, he must be hog-ass wild about you now. Harvey Nancy Pony Show. 
I want to thank Roy K. Because as an Essenon, he has made a wonderful, wonderful difference in my life. He helped the man I'm married to, and each one of us in this room, I believe, owes a debt of gratitude to Roy Kay. One thing I remember about Roy when he used to come to these conventions is um, he reminded me a lot of Mr. Rogers. He always wore his cable knit cardigan. And I'm going to miss that about Roy. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about my blissful marriage. <laughs> now, you have met the raper. I am the rapee. <laughs> one time, I was at one of these conventions, and Harvey was talking about the fact that he had raped his wife. And I'm sitting there and thinking, gee whiz, I'm his only wife, his first marriage, who is he talking about? It took my husband to say that I was a rape victim. That thought never, ever occurred to me. Just never occurred to me. I lived in a marriage, and it was alluded to earlier, that the way the addiction played in our marriage, that I was very much a part of it. And I became sicker and sicker and sicker in my own disease because no was not an option. And there were many a night, morning, afternoon, evening, that I was laying on my pillow with the tears just flowing because no was not an option. I would come home in the afternoon, and if I saw Harvey's car there, I wouldn't go home. I'd go round and round and round the block. Now, in our Essanon literature, there's a part that says, we think that sex is the most important sign of love. And boy, was I loved a lot. <laughs> we, I got married when I was 19, and um, Harvey was the first person that I had ever been intimate with. And actually, Harvey, this is something you don't know, but you're still the only person I've been intimate with. That's what you always say. I know, I lie a lot. <laughs> so I knew nothing except what I've read in Daniel Steele's novels. Knew very little. I think on the morning of my marriage, my mother came to me and she said, Nancy, I want to talk about things that's probably going to happen. And I said, Mother, you are much too late for that talk. <laughs> Absolutely a long time ago that was gone. And I got married at 19, and Harvey mentioned that I had gotten cystitis in the first few weeks of our marriage. And I remember we had got, I had to go to a doctor, and the doctor gave me a, a marriage manual, oh, a prescription for one, because back then you couldn't buy it over the counter or Kroger, or your, your um, cosmopolitan didn't have all those wonderful articles that we can look at now. So one time I remember I said to Harvey, oh, let's just have intercourse every other night. And this is John's night out. I thought I'd be cute and clever. I learned very quickly not to do that anymore. I learned very quickly that no was not an option. I learned very quickly that if I wanted my life to go smoothly, I had to put up or shut up. And it was like that for many years. We had four children in five and a half years. And uh, the progression of my own disease, my own eating disorder, got out of hand. 
the progression of the diseases of alcoholism and sexaholism got out of hand. And I was getting sicker and sicker. And, and, and I describe it as this. I had a basket of all these eggs. One egg was my self-esteem. One egg was my sense of values. One egg was my sense of humor. One egg was knowing right from wrong. And I made it a very pretty little basket and voluntarily handed that basket over to my husband. And he dropped it. And all my eggs were cracked. Now, remember I said I voluntarily handed that over because I have to take responsibility of my own disease. I've got to do that. And I no longer can play the role of the victim martyr because I love that role. I just really, really relish that role. I can't do that anymore. Esenon has taken that from me. It's given me a lot of gifts. And the gift that really has stuck with, I am no longer a victim. So anyway, I gave that nice basket of eggs and it got dropped. Now, who's it up to to repair all those eggs? Me. It's up to me. And one of the things I heard at a meeting once, or before a meeting, I, I was sitting at this meeting and this woman's cell phone rang and she said hello and apparently it was her husband. And she said, oh, I'm in class. And... Uh, I thought about it, and I keep thinking about it, that Esanon is my classroom. And I alternate in that classroom being a student and being a teacher. When I'm a student, I hear, I hear the experience, strength, and hope of those people in my fellowship meeting. And when I become a teacher, I share my experience, strength, and hope in that same classroom. So I've been thinking about that a lot. There's a a guy in AA who calls the rooms his learning center. And that's what they've been for me. I've had to learn how to put all those eggs back together. And I do it through the steps, the fellowship, the slogans, and everything about Esnam. And my age, my sense of humor is back, thank God. And that's another thing. I've learned to thank God. Because when I came into the program, my husband had become very observant in our religion. And I noticed him doing all these observant things on this this hand. And on this hand, he was doing all these crazy things. They were really nutty. And when Harvey tells you he's crazy, believe him. (laughs) So here, the religious part was here and the craziness was here. And so I couldn't understand how someone who was so religious could do all these things over there. So I learned, for me, and this is only my core belief for me, that you can be religious and you can be spiritual. You can have the two of them together, and that's your hand in prayer. And that's beautiful. But I've also learned There is a difference. I learned that the God that I was so angry at for putting all these things in my life. And when I got to this program, there was a lady in, and I came through Al-Anon. I came through to Esnon through Al-Anon. And there was a lady in Al-Anon, and I'll never forget her, because I couldn't stand her. 
She used to talk about God, the God of her understanding, all the time. And I wouldn't even sit next to her. Because I didn't want that rubbing off on me. So I wouldn't sit next to her. And I, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, she talked about hitting your knees. Hit your knees. And I wanted to hit her right in the mouth. <laughs> but one day... I was so nuts in my own way that I hit my knees and I hurt her. But if I hadn't gone to all those meetings and I hadn't listened to her share about hitting her knees and the God of her understanding, I wouldn't have ever known the relief that I've received. So today... I have my own special God, sits on my left shoulder, and looks like a little gnome with a long white beard and little pointy shoes, and I can get in the car because I have absolutely no sense of direction. I know that if I back out of my garage, I'm heading good. So I can just turn to that left shoulder God and say, okay, God, it's you and me, let's go. I've learned that the God of my understanding is going to carry me through the rough times. And I've learned to thank God for all the stuff that he's done for me. I've learned to um, thank God every time if I drop something and it doesn't break. I mean, I have to put my program in to the little itty bitty steps. They have to be small. At first, when I heard about making a gratitude list, and, you know, I didn't want to do any of this stuff. I thought the slogans were the most trite pieces of literature that I had ever, ever heard. When it said, let go and let God, I thought it meant let go and help God. You know, when I hear people say, well, they're tired of trying to be God. There wasn't trying to be in my life. I figured I was. I had a looking good family. I had a professional husband. I had four kids. And I was Mrs. Elmer's glue trying to keep this all together. I remember every year we used to have these pictures Photographs taken professionally of our family because we were so looking good. And uh, the appointments were like at two in the afternoon or whatever. And the fights that would go on in the house before trying to get these kids ready and this and that, trying to get them dressed. It was horrible. But we got to the photographer and we were looking good family. We were looking good. I remember being blamed for spending all the money in the house. My husband worked, and he brought home the bacon, or in my case, the beef fry. And um, I was accused of spending all the money. I was accused of... Not walking right, not talking right, not laughing right. You know, there was a whole list of things that I wasn't. So I tried so hard to turn myself inside out, to be the type of person that my husband would approve of. And I did that for a long time. Thank God that Essanon and S.A. and Roy K., and Bill W. and Dr. Bob and Lois and all those greats came into my life. Started going to the program and um, one day my husband had been in AA for a while and he came home and he said, uh, there's a program called Al-Anon for the spouses. Well, at that time, I had had it up to here. And I said, you, well, I wasn't real nice either during those days. And which was just a real, it was a compliment. (laughs) And I wouldn't go for quite a while. I just dug in my heels and wouldn't go. 
I don't know why, I don't know what happened, I finally went and it was like a duct taking to water. And um, I remember the, uh, uh, we talk a little about anonymity in our programs. And I learned early on that I shouldn't put too much store in worrying about anonymity. I once went to a, a meeting and this woman was telling the group what her husband had told her about this horrible wife of one of the AA members and what she had said and what she had done. And I raised my hand and I said, that was me. <laughs> so, anonymity to me, you know, is a figment of my imagination. But I had gotten myself a sponsor, and she would say to me, Nancy, your programs are like railroad tracks. They're parallel. And whenever you go into your husband's program, you're going to see a train wreck. Keep yourself on a parallel basis. She was also the one who told me not to bring up the past. She was also the one who told me that I didn't have to accept unacceptable behavior. And she told me what to do. She said, Nancy, just excuse yourself and go into the bathroom and say the serenity prayer. So I used to do that. I'd excuse myself, go into the bathroom, say the serenity prayer. And I never knew Harvey paid any attention. Until one day I heard him talk at a meeting and he said, there I was, yelling at an empty table. <laughs> but I needed concrete information because I didn't know I had choices. I just didn't know. And I needed with some, someone with some experience, strength, and hope to guide me, to be a mentor to me to be a sponsor to me. And um, this woman, she was the wife of my husband's sponsor. And I used to rat on him a lot. And I used to, I love my husband's sponsor because he always stuck up for me. He was wonderful. One time, um, Oh, it was like a snowy day like today, and, and we had an altercation in the, my husband's office where I was, and he shook me. He just shook me, and I called his sponsor, and we went over there, and they read him the riot act. And I loved him. <laughs> They were great people. What I had learned from them is spread this around. So in our SAS non-coupleship, we've invited couples over and we've shared couple experiences with other couples, you know, one-on-one. -on -one the four of us getting together. We have a couple in Ireland who we do Skype with. And it's all from these people that I have the ability in my illness to be willing, to be willing to learn and to be willing to listen. Earlier I talked about the how of the program. How do we work the program? Well, it's the honesty, the openness, and the willingness. What did it take for me to get honest? What did it take for me to realize and to accept the fact that I have character defects? Now, I don't want you guys to know that. I don't want you guys to, to know that I'm judgmental. You know, that's a character defect. And I learned in the program that a character defect is only an overworked character asset. Isn't that amazing? That's all a defect is. Because my basic 
being judgmental is good. It means I'm not going to stand in front of a moving truck. My judgment's pretty okay. But when I go to a meeting and see a person with a striped shirt and polka dotted pants and say to myself, I'm not going to listen to that person because they're not dressed right, that's the overworked character asset. I also learned something in the program which has helped me so much. Happiness is knowing I cannot change the past. I cannot make my husband not be a sexaholic. It's a disease. He's got it. I believe in my core that it's a genetic disease. I believe in my core that I cannot stop it. But I also believe that my responsibility is getting recovery for myself because I can pass that on. You know, I joke, we have eight grandchildren, and I say, well, let's not save money for their college tuitions. Let's save money for their treatment centers. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I can give to them. My family knows I'm an Essanon. My husband and I really bless him for this. Never made his sexaholism a secret. Never made his recovery a secret. They knew something was wrong in the house. Those of you who have kids, don't think you're hiding it from your children. They know something's going on. They knew something was going on in our house. In fact, um, when recovery came in and Harvey would have all this um, sexaholic recovery literature around, uh, the kids would ask him to put it away if their friends were coming. <laughs> and they used to call it lustbusters. <laughs> so they know where we are this weekend. My daughters-in-law used to call me and refer some of their friends to me. (laughs) That's a little ticklish situation. Another situation which was a little ticklish, we had uh, several years ago when my um, son came home with a girlfriend. and um, One day um, we were, you know, just hanging out in the den and he said to my husband, he said, want to know why you're a sexaholics anonymous? So, um, and this relates to to me, not to him. He, he, anyway, he started telling him. And as you, some of you who were sitting around me when Harvey was talking, I was going like this. Well, I felt that way between my son and and his girlfriend when when all this was going on. And, and I'd say, Oh God, please, please help me keep my eyes open, my head erect. You know, simple little prayers. Simple little prayers. The prayer I say is, God help me uh, spend this day with dignity and grace. Simple little prayers. I don't petition anymore. My, my favorite prayer to God is, God help me through this. That's it. God take care of those I love. That's it. It's the painful experiences, even in recovery, of having my son and his girlfriend sitting there and remembering all the stuff. You know, sometimes these, these conferences, these conventions can be very hard because it brings back the flood of memories. And I'm very grateful that these memories are, are way memories. You know, it was what it was, and it is what it is. And I cannot change. I cannot change the time frame. I can't change the past. And I want to thank you all for listening to me.
for being part of my life. And if I'm in a meeting with you, know that you will be my teacher. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, your best source for experience, strength, and hope from the SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choose either monthly or a one-time donation. Music was provided by Matt P. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.